Hey everyone, it's Nelly here. How are you doing? This podcast was recorded in the council area known as Darabin in Melbourne. I would like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land, the Wurundjeri people, and pay my respects to their elders past, present and emerging. Now, a couple of quick things that are very exciting. One, we have two live shows coming up, one at the Malthouse Theatre Outdoor Stage in Melbourne on the 8th of February, and the other one at the Flinders Fringe Festival on the 24th of February, both in 2024 and there'll be links to both of those in the show notes or you can go to my website at nellythomas.com secondly for acast plus and patreon supporters we're mixing things up we're now going to offer a bonus episode every second month and a live zoom q a with me and the team on the other months we just did our first one and oh my god it was so great so we got to chat together The co-hosts were there. You get to ask questions that you might not want to ask on the podcast. It's not public, so we can really unpack the shit. You can also see the comments and ideas of the Dear Nelly community, which is glorious. So all paid subscribers, and remember it's only five bucks a month, will be emailed times and a Zoom link for future Zoom sessions. Now, last but not least, you know it. This is a sex, dating and relationships podcast for adults. If you don't like swearing, it's really going to give you the shit. So off your fuck. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Dear Nelly, I could use some advice, dear Nelly. Yes, yeah, some help would be nice, dear Nelly. I'm eager to hear your point of view. Dear Nelly, there's a lot to explore, dear Nelly. When you're 40 or more, dear Nelly. So I'm hoping we can talk it through. So, welcome to Dear Nelly, Sex, Relationships and Dating from the Other Side of 40. We are joined by the one and only Amanda Hampson. Hello, Amanda. Hi, Nelly. How are you? I'm good. How are you? Pretty good. Good. Now, by way of context, you and I met recently. We were both speakers at Generation Women. I was in the 40s. You were in the... 60s. Almost in the 70s. Almost in the 70s. So do you mind if I ask how old you are? 69. 69. No jokes are going to be made about that, Amanda, but <laughs> we'll just, <laughs> just 
let's leave I'll cut it you right a bit there. of slack. I'll cut you a bit of slack. <laughs> now, do you mind? I mean, I know you as an author and speaker, but how would you describe yourself, like professionally, personally, whatever you want? Uh, I don't describe myself as a speaker. I'm just a an author. Yeah, just an author. Um, although I saw recently that uh, because older women have no title at all, I saw recently a suggestion that should we, we should be called Queen Ages. And so I think I'm going to adapt that. <laughs> so author and Queen Ager. You spelt with a K and a W. Spelt with a K and a W. <laughs> I'm just yeah, channeling that's an interesting my teenager. Idea. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> Lovely. So you have how many books have you published, and what do you write? I write. I my first two books were non-fiction books, and since then I have written eight um, novels. Amazing. Thank you. Amazing. When did you start writing? At what age? Look, I think I always wrote to some degree. I grew mm. up in rural New Zealand. There was yep. absolutely nothing going on and yep. and we didn't have televisions. So mm. reading was a big part of our lives and mm. writing stories and uh, I wrote tortured poems in my teenage years and then yep. short stories in my 20s. And then I wrote for my work as a copywriter. Yep. I worked as an event producer yeah. So I just kept on going and building the muscle, I guess. Yes. Until it wasn't until I was in my mid forties mm. that I attempted a novel because I started to realise that time was actually marching on mm. and running and, out. And can we sit with that for a minute for this listenership? I mean, our listeners are all ages, but obviously the the focus is on sort of life after forty and wisdom after forty. You started, you wrote your first novel in your mid-40s. Like, mm. in other words, it's not too late. If you're listening oh, and no, you think, no. I want to try that thing, try yeah. it. Yeah. Oh, mm-hmm. absolutely. And um, I think uh, I, I, I've never really felt limited by age, but I think that up until that point I didn't really feel ready. Yeah. I just didn't feel as though I had the worldly experience. Yeah. Um, so when I did start to write, it took me five years to write my first novel, but it was accepted mm. straight away by Penguin. Amazing. And um, it is amazing because I left school at 16. Yeah. So a lot of people now have PhDs in creative writing. Mm. Um, so, and I've now been with, by the next year, I would have been with Penguin 20 years. Incredible. <laughs> So yeah, I do. I seem to do everything out of step with everybody else. But oh, I don't know. I think you do it on your own timelines, and those those scripts of how life's supposed to go don't apply to most people. But we're just only hearing those stories now. I think. I mean, that's part of how you and I met, right? Yes, absolutely. Yes. Yeah, and taking us back. So one of the things that I loved about that event, that intergenerational conversation is so important in the sense that the same sorts of events have very different ramifications for different generations. And if you don't mind me saying, like one of the things I found fascinating was that you, so you had a child when you were 16. Yeah, just turned 17. So the implications of that um, when you were 16, 17 are completely different to the implications for a 16, 17-year-old now. Not that that is an easy path, but your path was particularly fraught. Absolutely. Um, Well, the other thing is that teenagers now have some sex education. Exactly. 
I mean, I was born in 1954 and everything to do with sex or nudity was yeah. hidden from us. In fact, yeah. I can remember coming home from school when I was primary school, telling my mother that somebody had told me that people took their clothes off mm. to have sex. And I said, that's clearly impossible because adults were constantly telling you to put your clothes on. Clothes on. But they seemed to be in very, very wed to this idea mm. of people being clothed. So why would they do the opposite? So mm. we'd, the closest you would get would be something like Playboy if you found a, mm. somebody's mm. hidden copy of Playboy. Yeah. Um, there was something came out in the 60s called the Little Red School Book, mm. which had sex education in it. Mm -hmm. And that was quickly banned and it was banned to have it at school and, you know, just wow. generally banned all over. Yeah. So um, certainly lack of knowledge mm. that um, vastly contributed to the fix I found myself in. Mm -hmm. And as I talked about at Generation Women, I was kicked out of home mm. and um, just found various roofs over my head. Mm. until I could um, give birth and give my son up for adoption. Mm. And there was no sense of compassion. Nobody ever seemed to think, I wonder how this little girl mm. feels. I mm. wonder if she is afraid. I wonder if she's worried. Mm. That just... <laughs> Mm. We were whatever's so the opposite of, mm. you know, people condemn young people as being snowflakes, but... Nobody seemed to care how we felt yeah. as if we didn't have feelings. No. We just done the wrong thing and kind of no punishment was severe enough for us. Well, and what I find interesting in your story and, you know, the story of so many women in your situation, particularly of your generation, is that the shame is put on you as a child. You were still a child having a child and yet this like social societal shame is put in your lap and literally rendered you homeless. Yes, exactly. I think I didn't really realise until I was in my 30s that I was a child. Mm. It was only then that I um, started to look at 16-year-olds and think, oh, mm. gosh, they're gawky, mm. uh, awkward mm. children um, mm. who think that they're you know, they know the world. We just didn't have a clue. We just yeah. had no clue. Yeah, and on top of that, no information about how to prevent that pregnancy in the first place, mm. you know, so <laughs> who should be ashamed? Not the kid. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. Right? I mean, I've got a 16-year-old, I assure you, and I know you have children yourself. I, she is very much a child, very much yeah. a child, and yeah. the idea that you would heap that kind of responsibility Mm. Um, on the shoulders of a child is it's unfathomable to me yeah and you know it took my dad probably 30 or 40 years to fully apologize for the way I was treated mm. um, I think you mentioned in your podcast with Kaz Cook that actually mm. parents of our generation did not apologize yeah. Yeah. they were the management <laughs> Yes. Management does not need to apologise. That's right. They're the boss. Uh, yeah, they're the boss. Yeah. Everything's on a need-to-know basis. Yeah. But later in life he said to me that he unequivocally apologised, that I, he said the men in your life did not look after you and mm. I was one of them. 
Oh, wow. Um, How did that feel? Um, yeah, I thought it was very, very honest of him. Yeah. And, um, he, look, I've never really condemned him mm. because he was a hard man. You know, he grew mm. up in Liverpool in England. Mm. Uh, my granddad, you know, was one of these men that would go down to the docks, what used to mm. be called in Sydney, the Hungry Mile, yeah. to get work every day. Yeah. My dad left school at 12 during the war to help support his mother and sister. Mm. Um, yeah, he just, he was somebody of another era. And, um, you know, we found out later in life that, in fact, while his dad, my granddad, was away in the war, he fathered a child. Oh, and honestly, Amanda, I was just about to say, I feel in my waters. Yeah. There is some intergenerational shame going on exactly. here that hasn't been resolved. And to the point, at the point that I um, got pregnant, he had never told my mother about it. That's how shameful wow. it was. Wow. Uh, so because what happened is my grandfather was sent to Dunkirk. He was in the Royal Engineers mm. and he was on the beaches mm. and missing for two weeks. Mm. And then he famously flipped open the letterbox, you know, mm. those in the door and called out, Edie, come down and open the door. Mm. And he was home. They'd, he'd been posted as dead. But then he was sent up to the Orkneys for four years. So that's wow. a very long time. And yeah. he fell in love with someone up there. And mm. so when he came back to Liverpool, he told my nan that he had fathered a child up there and that he needed mm. to bring the gold down from the Orkneys mm. because she was completely ostracised from her family. Mm. So we're seeing this repeating. Repeated. Of, um, yeah. as you say, generational trauma around yeah. this particular topic. And the the secrecy and the, like, cultural and religious and other kinds of shame that then reinforce that trauma. You know, over and over again, in an ideal world, if your dad had been able to even talk to your mum about it, let alone you, mm. then your experience would have been vastly different. Yeah, well, you know, go me, because I actually managed to find his brother, his half-brother. Wow. yeah. So when dad was in his early 80s, he, you know, we had talked about it. My mum's long gone by then. And he said, I'd like to find my brother because there was no one else left. Mm. And he said, all I know is that he was born somewhere in Merseyside in 1946 and his mother's name began with M. Mm. And you found her? Yeah. Wow, look at you. I'm very, very determined when I'm, yes. you know, on the case. And so they were reunited um, and his brother had been waiting his whole life Mm. Oh, his whole life to find the family. And when I first met him, I went up to Liverpool and he literally cried all weekend. Oh, that breaks my heart. Yeah. But they were reunited. He went out to New Zealand a few times to see my dad. Mm. And they used to speak every week on uh, Skype right up Mm. until when my dad died a couple of years Mm. ago. Oh, what a gift. Yeah, look, and I think a lot of it is with uh, you know what I see over these issues are estrangements in families mm. and that's kind of a dead end mm. you know I always felt that my parents response to my pregnancy was not my problem to resolve 
That oh. is something that I had to live with. Did you feel that when you were 16, 17, or you came to feel that? Came to feel it later on. Mm. At 16, 17, I took entirely full responsibility. Oh, yeah. yeah. But later on, when people would say, you know, do you still speak to your parents? I was like, yeah, of course. You know, mm. I didn't see it as my problem to, mm. you know, send that to the grudgery permanently. Mm. Uh, yeah. Why would you? Mm. Yeah. And for you, you were able to, I mean, the way that I've described it before, which is what a therapist had said to me, is taking, like, if you consider shame like a basketball, you know, that's sitting in your lap, like you kind of hand it back and you go, you do yeah. with that what what yeah. you will. You know, it's not mine. Absolutely. In Buddhism, they say, I don't accept your gift. Oh, oh, I love, I'm going to write that down. Yeah, when someone's now, mean to you, when someone yeah. insults you, I don't accept yeah. your gift. Yeah, take it back. Here you go. <laughs> Throw a couple of hoops. As you would know from the podcast, normally we go back to, you know, teenage you. Um, obviously, we've already introduced that idea. Do you mind, and you share as much or as little as you're comfortable with, do you mind me asking if you were in a relationship with the father of your child? I We had met um, New Year's Eve, 1971, yeah. Yeah. and so we'd been going out for about three months. Um, it was the first time I had gone that far, as they yeah. say, we used to say. Yeah. Uh, he was particularly determined. I think uh, for a lot of us in the in that period of time, there was a sense of just getting that over with. Yes. Oh, that's actually persists, Amanda. Unfortunately, yeah, you're sort but of yes. burdened with your so-called virginity. I wish that yeah. that expression would disappear forever. Yes. So, um, yeah, naivety, and he did look. He he wasn't prepared to support a child. He was not prepared yeah. to do anything in that regard. But mm. he did hang around. He did try and support me. He did help me run away from the home that I was put in. Mm. Um, you know, he sort of did what he could do. Mm. And then uh, when I came home, I basically my whole world had fallen apart. I was out of school. Yeah. I All my friends had run for the hills because you've mm. just become like a leper. We can still mm. say that. Like scarlet and, leper. Yeah. Yeah. And... Um, so I continued to go out with him. We then were married about three years later. Oh, wow. Yeah, so I think looking back that to a large extent I completely lost my confidence of yeah. what it was to be out in the world. Yeah. Uh, we had an, a bit of an on and off relationship. Well, I left a few times, let's put it that way. It, mm. wasn't, it wasn't on and off from his mm. point of view. Mm. From mine, I just hadn't had a chance to really grow up. Mm. We went to live in London. Uh, I convinced him to do that. And, um, you know, that was a fantastic time. But mm. I was quite dissatisfied in that relationship. Mm. And as I was coming up to 30, I think that we just agreed it was over. And, it was done. Um, mm. It was done, yeah. Do you think part of you, I'm imagining, how old was he? Similar age or older? He was, he was 17, yeah. He was time. 17, so yeah, you're both young. Like I wonder yeah. if I'm piecing together a narrative, you get pregnant, you're kicked out of home, you are put in despicable conditions in a you know home for so-called wayward girls or whatever it was called, then you come back. Mm. Do you think you end up marrying him as some 
for both of you, maybe some attempt to make it right in some way? Well, I suppose nobody else really understood what I had been through. It's interesting. I've got two photographs, one that was taken late the year before um, or perhaps early that year where I look like just a sunny teenager Mm. and one that's taken a few weeks after I come home and I just look so unhappy, Mm, so unhappy, Mm. which I wasn't really aware of Mm. then. Mm. So... Yeah, I think, mm. um, yeah, and I think there is that thing if if you've got somebody and they want to be with you. Mm. At that time, women didn't have that much autonomy. No, absolutely. And um, yeah. so you just kind of just went with that. And and yeah. as you say, you've been through a tra- traumatic event that, I mean, I don't think he could have understood it to the extent that you did. I mean, the consequences are far greater for you than for him, um, but you'd still been through it together to some degree. We had. I think one of the issues going forward is that whenever I wanted to, every once in a while I would get want to talk about it and get very upset. Mm. And he, about the loss of our yeah. child, yeah, and he would say, don't talk about it. It only makes you upset. Mm. So then at a certain point I stopped talking about it and didn't talk about it for about 20 years. Oh, wow. So a lot of my friends didn't really know anything about it. Mm. Um and then when the laws changed and mm. we were able to make contact, mm. um, up until then I had written to the Social, Social Welfare Department of New Zealand and tried to get information, uh, basically to find out if he was dead or alive. Yeah. And um, been told they had no records. When the laws changed, I contacted them and the records were miraculously recovered mm. and they said they would write to him. And um, and all I could write a letter and they would deliver that to him. Mm. And so that was done and, and we were reunited uh, after he turned 21. Wow. And you were what age at that point? 30s. So I was in my 30s, yes. Yeah. So by that point, your first marriage, well, to his father had ended. Had you remarried? Mm. Yes. And what, um, I was you don't mind? What was that like? Early 30s. Yeah. Oh, that was good. Yeah, no, yeah. at that time uh, things were going well. Um, later on, we were together for twenty years, mm. but I think at the at the at the time that I called time on that relationship, it had become um, just very very difficult. We had two children, and um, yeah, for reasons that I won't go into. Mm. Um, one being that he suffered from depression. Mm. I just was not coping myself mm. and um, made the decision to to make a side with step on that. Mm. We, we've continued to be friends. We still have family get-togethers. Yeah. All of that is good. Yeah. But <laughs> with one thing and another, mm. after that, I just decided, I didn't decide instantly, but at some point, I decided that I was done. Yeah. That I had had, you know, yeah. all these difficulties with, um, you know, with men in relationships and children. And mm. my second partner, we had trouble conceiving and we did IVF mm. and all that kind of stuff and then it happened naturally. Mm. So um, initially I had two children to look after, 13 and 10. Mm. So clearly 
bringing a new partner into that scenario was not going to help the situation. Mm. So a few years down the track when they were sort of old enough for me to be independent, mm. I had an experience where I went to Spain and I walked the Camino de Santiago mm. um, from France to um, Santiago de Compostela. And during that walk, I realised that I was very happy as a solo. Yes. And I was going to stick with it. And one of the reasons is that on the Camino, there is an inverse pyramid of uh, societal hierarchy, if mm. that's mm. even a thing. Mm. You know, in life, single people mm. are kind of a little bit looked down on and a little yeah. bit ostracised. Mm. And... Um, when you go on the Camino, somebody walking solo and carrying their own pack mm. is the top of the social ladder. Yes. Uh, people who walk in groups and have their packs moved from hotel to hotel mm. are at the bottom. Yes. So the rich the yes. rich and the companion at the bottom. Yes. And people at the people at the top, single people, are treated with respect. Yeah. You can go into a um albergue and you stay the night and you meet people and you go out for a meal and people are friendly mm. i just thought this is this suits me i really i, oh, don't, I don't get lonely i'm not what a, a lovely person. just sitting with that as a metaphor what a lovely like we talk about on this podcast like ripping up the script what a lovely inversion of the script and yeah. and an invitation for people to look at the world and relationships in a different way. I think that's beautiful. I mean, as I said to you before we started talking, one of the reasons I wanted to get you on the podcast is because I was so struck with the, in your speech at Generation Women, that genuine pride in saying, I like doing life on my own and not on your own without any people at all you've clearly got you know friends Sometimes, and yeah. colleagues and you know <laughs> but you've got children and and yeah, all yeah. the rest of it but to just own that and kind of go you know what there was a point it sounds like late 40s ish where you just went i'm done with that yeah that's right and so i think when i walked the camino i was probably around 60 and yeah. yeah, I could see that I had everything I need. It's a great mm. life for an author to be single. You don't have people interrupting you all the time. Yes. And um, <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm a very independent person. I love the fact that I don't have to uh, lobby anyone to go and do something. Yes. I don't have to talk them around. I don't have to worry about their feelings. Mm. As as I get older, I see a lot of men of my generation I just find finding them more and more difficult to get on with. Mm. I'm very disappointed that a lot of boomers, when we had, we were so progressive, have mm. now become very conservative. What is that about, Amanda? I, d I don't understand it. I just am, it's very disappointing. Mm. And, you know, I, I do call friends out on it. Mm. But sometimes I think, well, you know, I'm just becoming combative arguing yes. with all my friends' husbands. Yes. <laughs> they all find me annoying. Yeah. I just find it hard to let it go when people say, oh, you can't say anything now. Yeah. And I say, well, what is, <laughs> what is it, it that you wanted to say? Yeah. Is there some racial slur that you're yes. missing? Yeah. Um, also, they always say that when they've just said the thing. Yes. You know, like it's enraging to me when you hear yeah. literally like a, a someone who's got their own syndicated talkback radio show nationally 
saying, I can't say anything. You're saying it right now on a radio station. It's just that some people don't like it. Yes. Right? You don't like the challenge. You're not being censored. You're being criticised. Yes, exactly. So, yeah, it's, look, I think we are, you know, the baby boomers, we've still stuck with a lot of things imposed on us unknowingly brainwashed Mm. by the patriarchy. Mm. So, you know, I was still here, women of my age group, talk about women who've been sexually assaulted and what they were wearing and where they were. Mm. And Mm. I just go, what the fuck are you talking about? Yes. What are you talking about? Yes. I say, well, look, I understand it. We we had to take care of ourselves by Mm. being very careful Mm. of making sure we were covered up, making Mm. sure we were with other people. Mm. But that does not... That you can't extrapolate that to say mm. someone who's sexually assaulted mm. was she was wearing the wrong thing. Mm. That is so absurd. Mm. Um, well, and Amanda, as you and I both know, all the care and consideration and covering up, and I'll be with this person and I'll walk down this street. You know, to be brutally frank, it didn't work. Right? There was there yeah. were there are women in covered you know head to toe who were sexually assaulted. There are women who are, you know, you're far more likely to be assaulted by someone that you know in your own home, you know, so the the entire premise of it is wrong. Absolutely. But I think, you know, if if you were educated in a convent like my mother, Mm. um, they had the priest come and tell them that women were temptresses and that any... um, any lax behaviour by men had mm. to the shoulder had to be shouldered responsibility by women. By women, so yeah. it's very hard to yeah. um, move past that. It is, but yeah. well, and as we speaking of intergenerational trauma, you know, the thing that I find both unfathomable but also understandable simultaneously is that so many of those women themselves have been sexually assaulted, and I can't help but think that they're bringing their own shame to that conversation. You know, there's Absolutely. part of them going, Absolutely. I should have done something different if I hadn't have worn that, if I hadn't have gone there. Yeah. That That has been put on them too and it's not resolved. I think also if I don't wear those things, this won't happen to me. If yeah, I don't do right. the thing that, that she did, mm. won't happen to me. You know, I also hear women my age saying, oh, well, you know, we never had trouble with these sex pests in offices. I mean, they just oh. didn't have a name. But yeah. they were, the office was banging with them. Yeah. You know, we just were yeah. used to it. We were yeah, used to right. not standing next to him, um, yeah. you know, just shrugging someone off, his massaging his yeah. shoulders, oh. um, all of that kind of stuff. Mm. We didn't know any different. And no. there was just absolutely no point in you bringing it up because mm. you'd be told, um, you'd never hear this term anymore, but you'd be told you were a frigid. Yep. Um, I don't know why that used to be a big thing. Yep. And um, that you had no sense of humor. So, you know, you yep. wouldn't even report to your boss if somebody touched you. No, you'd of be- course not. You'll be very yeah. pleased to know, Amanda, the first heckle I ever got when I started doing stand-up was that a guy yelled out frigid slut. Oh, there you go. <laughs> Like, how can that even work? Yes, that's right. Right? <laughs> Contradiction in terms. Um, because I know that there is a lot of listeners who will be very heartened by hearing, you know, a woman of your age say, I'm happy on my own and I'm done with that. 
Can we end this section by you just telling me, I mean, obviously you've said you enjoy your independence and you don't have to negotiate. What's the best thing about being single and independent? Look, I'm involved in lots of different people's lives. I yeah. Everywhere I go, I talk to people. I'm the person that talks to someone at the crossing or yeah. have conversations on the tram. Mm. That would be very irritating to be with, but I meet lots of interesting <laughs> people like in that way. I'm also able to step in where I've got friends that I've known since they were children mm. and they're now in their 50s. Mm. There's a bit of a crisis. Mm. Um, I, I can help. You know, I can yeah. let me know what I can do to help that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I recently went with a friend to help her brother move in Queensland, leave his marriage. Mm. And I was asked to do that as a family friend. Mm. So I have a very close relationship with mm. um, my kids, with my grand, because I, because my older son is now 52, mm. um, all my grandchildren are growing up. I have a very close relationship with them. Mm. Yeah, I just yeah. go wherever I want. I, I do things yeah. with friends and with my kids and mm. we go out for trivia nights and I find a lot of older men, they just don't want to go anywhere is what women tell mm. me. They mm. don't, they just want to stay home. So, mm. yeah. And I think it's no, it's no coincidence. The the energy that you would be putting into either finding or maintaining a romantic relationship, you've put into your other relationships. Right? Absolutely. And they yeah. have benefited as a result. And, again, this is one of the things that I guess we're trying to change on the podcast, that if you find yourself or you choose to be single, that that doesn't mean loneliness, right? For some no, people it no, does. Exactly. It doesn't have to be. You have channeled that energy and time into other people you love. Absolutely. And I had a situation a couple of years ago where a very close friend, 10 years younger than me, was diagnosed with a, a terminal cancer. And mm. so I was able, to, as a single person, through COVID and lockdowns, mm. I was able to be there. I was the person that she said, these are the things I want done after I go. Yep. I'm still close to her family. I'm still, her daughter was down here in Melbourne staying with me. Mm. So I'm able to put some energies into doing the things that she asked me to do Yeah, as a single person. Yes. Saying, yes. take care of my family when I'm gone. Yeah. So I consider that to be, you know, not just valuable work, but an mm. incredible privilege and an honour mm. to be able to support other people like that. Mm. Oh, for both of you, for both of you. And that's, the you know, it's the same with I can't bear the, you know, terminology around like childless children and that's starting, uh, childless women, that's starting to shift now to child-free and all that kind of stuff. By, you know, in a similar vein, the friends of mine who don't have children are the friends that I feel more comfortable asking for support as a single parent when I need it, yeah. right? Because they haven't got their yeah. own kids to um, tend to. And that doesn't mean they haven't got stuff to do, but they yeah. are absolutely have more energy for children than parents, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, oh, definitely. But what I find weird is that they're not just called women. There are women with children. I and there know. Are women. Oh. There are people and there are married people. I don't yeah. know why there's still yeah. uh, people have to have all these different labels. Yeah. And I still oh, hear, yeah. I still hear people my age talking about. I've got another friend who's aggressively single, saying, you know, she's so attractive. I can't understand. Yeah. 
why she hasn't found someone because she does want to. The assumption that she's sitting by by the phone just going, why isn't anyone calling? It's like, yeah, Yeah, isn't that wild? But she's so pretty. How did that happen? Yeah, and she's smart. Yeah, she chose it. Yeah. Yeah. She can't get a man. Yeah, yeah. That's, that's that's still um, is pervasive, yeah. I think, particularly in the baby boomers. Yeah, no, I think you're right. I think you're right. We've got to we've got to try and shift that. Now I'm going to take us to Armchair Expert, where I present you with um, something random that I've found on the internet and get your right. that's piqued my interest and get your um, comments. So this is from Becoming Minimalist, Becoming Minimalist on Instagram. I'll read it out to you and see what you think. Contrary to popular opinion, quitting is for winners. Knowing when to quit, change direction, leave a toxic situation, demand more from life, give up on something. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Something that wasn't working and move on is a very important skill that people who win at life all seem to have. What do you think about that? Absolutely yeah. agree. I, I see people staying in all sorts of different situations, in places they don't like living, in marriages yeah. they've been unhappy in for years, in yeah. jobs they don't like, through some misplaced sense of loyalty or fear of change. Or mm. I just have always felt if you open that door, mm. there'll be something on the other side. Yeah, agreed. But you have to open the door first. It's yes. not... And nobody's going to knock on your door mm. and say, look, come out, it's safe out here. Yeah. You absolutely have to um, make that move, no yeah. question. And the reality is you are going to cop from some people. You are going to cop um, you quit or you gave up or even you're a failure. Like the way that we describe divorce as a failed marriage like even that yes. I have a problem with. Yes, it, it, really it's more that it came to the end of the chapter, I like to feel it, and then that was the end of that chapter and now we're yeah. opening a new chapter. And even better, we had the guts to move to the next chapter. Yes. Right? That's yes. not a failure. That's a new beginning. Yeah, I think a lot of it is around fear of change though. I think yes. if you're able to embrace change, then mm. you look forward to things changing. Mm. You know, a year ago I made sort of a, an impulsive decision to move from Sydney where I lived for 42 years mm. to Melbourne mm. and I couldn't possibly have known how fantastic it would be. Mm. So many things have changed for me. Mm. And, you know, if, if, you, if your super needs a boost, you cannot do better mm. than sell in Sydney and buy in Melbourne. Yeah. <laughs> absolutely absolutely it's incredible. yeah it's but the also, best financial decision i've ever made accidentally yeah by, by chance but i think that basic idea as you said if you it doesn't it could be a job 
that you're sitting in. It could be the place that you live. It could be a friendship that you have. It could be a marriage. Like there's a whole suite of things. There's somewhere in your internal knowing knows that it's done. Yeah. But it's about having the courage, I think, to open that door and go, I don't know what's on the other side, but I'll be okay. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Bravo. So quitting is for winners. Um, Now, just a little cute, I think it might be, is it Instagram or Twitter or whatever they're calling Twitter now? I can't remember. Um, Michael Adler, who I'm assuming is a divorce lawyer, had posted, just settled a divorce over visitation of a parrot. Neither may teach it negative phrases about the other. I went to law school for this. Oh, my goodness. The pettiness of Oh, yeah, I think I saw that somewhere. My God, like, I believe him 100%. What do you think, you know, when you see people or you've experienced going through the end of a relationship and they are so convinced that it's critical who gets the doona cover, who get? I'm not talking superannuation and big things. I'm talking who gets the bloody custody of the parrot. Why do we focus on that stuff? Look, I think the biggest thing is disappointment. Is Disappointment is one of the worst emotions that you yes. can suffer. Yes. And I think people at the end of a relationship are disappointed at the deepest possible level. Unknowingly, mm. you know, mm. um, they're disappointed in the dream. Yeah. They're disappointed in in the in the whole box and dice. Mm. And so they're probably, you know, looking for something to to quibble about. Yeah. To start an argument about to yeah. to take some control, I guess, of the situation. Control, I think, yeah, and and put their put their disappointment into something else. Even to channel it, yeah, right. I think you're right. I think it's like a because it seems even when you see incredibly articulate, insightful people, you know, going into the depths of that pettiness, and I think there's something going on where. They are so disappointed, perhaps disappointed in themselves, yes. in the other person, feel like a failure. Um, and it feels like, well, if I can get this thing sorted out with the parrot, I've had a win. Yeah. If I get that duvet cover, all will if be If I good. get it, you know, <laughs> and then you go, can you not, like if you step back, you are not winning anything. No. You are like mired in the mud and this is going to take yeah. you even longer to recover from. Yeah, exactly. And uh as they say, if you jump in the sewer, you look like everything else in there. And you know, what is it? You lay down with dogs, you get up with fleas. Yeah, We've got so- exactly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Are you ready for this? Is a fascinating call. You ready for a listener call? Sure. Hi, Nelly. Um, I'm Belle, and I've just come out of a 13 year relationship with three kids. And I just have a few questions. One of the questions is that no one really talks about the fact that when you come out of a long-term relationship that while you're dealing with sort of coming out of the relationship and everything that goes with that and co-parenting and stuff like that, what I've noticed is all the shitty things that happened during the relationship have now come to the surface in my head. And I'm sort of through therapy and things like that, sort of thinking about all those things that happened and why they happened and I'm not really sure what to do with that because I've spent a long time during the relationship suppressing those things that my ex did that really upset me and now they're all coming up to the surface and whenever I see him I just feel really angry and I can't even look at him 
and my heart starts pounding and I never felt like nervous or anything like obviously when I was with him so I don't really understand how to process that I am going to therapy but maybe it's just a time thing I don't know I'd like to get somebody else's opinion on whether that's a normal thing yeah my other question is um after I broke up with my partner a lot of people asked me if my ex-partner was on the spectrum and I know I have ADHD tendencies and my mum is on the spectrum and I just wondered if it was worth having discussion about um Okay, so the second part of the question, I'm going to quarantine that out for another episode. So, wow, I mean, I can relate to this. I don't know if you can relate to it. Yeah, what do you hear? Well, I think one of the things is when a relationship comes to an end, especially if you have the idea in your head that the relationship failed, Mm. that you are looking back, it's like a crime scene. You're looking back at the clues over 10 years, over 15 years when he nearly had that affair or when he did have that affair or when he said he didn't but you still think that maybe he did, something happened. Um, Times that you were let down. Something didn't feel right. Yeah. Yeah. The times that you were let down when you asked for support and you didn't get it. I I just think it's that crime scene thing. You're looking Mm. at all the clues that Mm. led you to this point. Mm. I've thought sometimes that maybe couples should have separation counselling so that Mm. you can... Just sit there and say, you know, these are all the things. That, let's just be straight with each other and be square yes. so we can walk away and and start again. Mm. Um, yes, absolutely. And I think, I think that would, you know, I always felt that if I got into a relationship, I'd probably make a lot of the same mistakes mm. of being, you know, too supportive, too self-sacrificing, mm. um, you know, being the sort of the donkey in the relationship in terms of doing all the work. Mm. Um, because it wasn't, it's not really resolved. When you finish that relationship, you just flung out into the world. Mm. And I see, I see friends go back into similar relationships. Yeah, replicate it. Yep. So yeah, I can, I can absolutely see where she's coming from, and mm. I think it's a normal way to process it and see what the little things that happened along the way, how it all led to this point. Yeah, and I think, I mean, the crime scene such a perfect analogy in terms of looking at, you start to look back and look at the clues. Like you say, the first time you were let down, you know, the second time you were disappointed, the third time you asked for support and didn't get it, or whatever the issues were, and the danger, and I think I hear this in her voice, what we then do to ourselves is go, oh, well, I'm stupid. Mm. You know, Mm. I should have seen them and I should have. And there's some element at which, you know, if you're a reflective person, yeah, you do have to reflect on that and kind of go, well, how did I miss that? And what led me to accept um, that kind of treatment? But I think it's a mistake to then spiral into, so I'm a weak person or I'm a terrible person or they're a terrible person. Yes. Yeah. Things happen that have complex workings behind the scene. Mm that you're never really going to know mm. uh, what went on and why you didn't get that support or whatever, mm. but you're sort of left with the backwash from it. You are. And there's also complex um, social, cultural, family narratives telling you to stay, right? So yes. there is a lot of you're getting a lot of messages going, basically ignore your instincts, yeah. You know, you might think your partner's having an affair or they're not supportive enough or they're not doing it, whatever it is. 
but you're getting sometimes explicit and certainly implicit messages from everywhere, make it work, make it work. And I think it's really interesting that she identified she's angry now and wasn't then. I think that's really common because when you're trying to make something work against the odds, you dissociate. Yes, and you're pushing it aside. You can't afford to dwell on it. No. Well, I have to admit that when I left my first husband, I didn't really tell anyone. So my mother Mm. rang Mm. and he said, oh, she doesn't live here anymore. Oh, wow. (laughs) Wow. And why didn't you tell them? Did you expect judgment? No, I just, well, I just wouldn't obviously, with our history, I wouldn't ask them for advice. I didn't just want anybody else involved. I made a decision. I was going but yeah, that that was a little bit unfortunate. I would have got to it sooner or later. Yeah. <laughs> that is very interesting. In terms of our caller, I think, you know, one of the things, and certainly for women of your generation, I would say even for mine and even for, I'm sad to say, my kids' generation, um, anger is still a very vexed area for women and we are either not given permission or don't give ourselves permission to be angry. I would say to her, you know, name it to tame it, like be angry, sit in that anger. That doesn't mean that you act out on that anger, you know, don't go around to his house and whatever, whatever, but you have every right to feel angry. I agree with you that I would, and I'm so glad she said she's in therapy. You need someone to guide you through that. Yes. But feel angry. Yeah. You've probably got every reason to feel angry. That doesn't mean your behaviour toward him even has to change. But you're certainly not going to work to just pretend that you don't feel it. No, and and in fact, that's what's coming out. When she sees him, she can hardly look at him. Yes. And that's because there's this unexpressed anger sitting there. Yes. Um, And that's not good for anybody, really. It's not. And I wonder, and this really depends. We don't have enough information to know whether this is good advice. She'd have to take this on herself. But I wonder if there is an opportunity, whether it is with a couple's therapist or if she can do it with someone else, to even just say to him, I just need you to know I'm angry. You know, you don't even have to re-prosecute. You did this and you did this and you did this. I just need you to know I'm angry and that's why I'm having trouble interacting with you now. Mm. It will, you know, I'll move through it, but name it. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's great, great advice. Having said that, I'm going to put in a caveat because of my background in family violence. Do not do that if you feel at risk. I don't know if you're at risk and I'm not suggesting that you are, but if you have any sense that you are at risk, do not do that. Yeah. Send a text, go, I'm angry. Yeah. (laughs) And let him puzzle over it for a few weeks. And you know what? This is also something that you do with your friends, right? Mm. Like have there will be a friend, not all friends can sit with this, but there will be a friend that you can call and say, I need to talk to you about that time on our 10th wedding anniversary when they did this. Can I please just express it? Yeah, absolutely. And friends are fantastic like that, that you can just put it out there. Yeah, absolutely. Fantastic. All right. I've got a listener letter for you. So I'll read it out and then see what you think. Dear Nellie, I would like to give you and Wade a big hug. So Wade Duffin was a previous co-host. Give you a big hug for your discussion about my letter. It was heartwarming to hear your compliments and how I found my feet after the initial adulting difficulties in my early 20s. To clarify, that was about finding a casual job during uni and being a nerd and was at odds with country retail, etc. I want to thank you too 
for making the letter a reminder to high school students not to worry about what happens after school. There are plenty of times and pathways to find your thing and your people. And if the jobs out there don't suit you, create your own. I thought this was a perfect letter for you. So by for context, this is basically someone who felt like in her 20s, she was getting everything wrong. You know, like I'm paraphrasing, but that she couldn't Mm. find her feet. What do I do? I don't know what I want to be, who I want to be, whether that's in terms of work, relationships, everything, and clearly ended up finding her feet. But one of the things Wade and I talked about, he's just started screenwriting in his 40s. And so both him and I were saying, we've got to take this pressure off kids, you know, to have all of this sorted out in year 12 or even earlier, how does that sit with you? Well, I think that is a current day dilemma. You know, Mm. when I was young, your 20s was for mucking around. Yeah. Um, There weren't that many career paths for women. You either became a nurse, a teacher, or worked in the bank. Yes. um, Until you got (laughs) married when you had to leave your job anyway. Yeah. So the upside of that is there was much less pressure on us. Yeah. The downside of it was women who then later on wanted to go to university, for example, mm. um, often had really a big problem with their husbands Yeah, who in the 70s were very anti them becoming educated. And I know yeah. a few men that I was very surprised mm. how anti they were, their wives going, one, I'm kind of not surprised, let's say, the cars of the tire, the tires of the car down to stop his wife going to uni. Oh wow! Going to her lecture. Um, wow. So we did, we did, but we did not have that pressure. We could mm. basically tootle around to our heart's content. Mm. I don't think there was also this pressure to have a career, and I've never yeah. felt that I had a career or wanted a career. Mm. I just did jobs, made money, left that job, did something else that was mm. interesting. Mm. So. You know, while there was um, a lot of workplace uh, sort of prejudice, let's say, towards mm. women, that was there was some freedom in that to some regards. Yes. We just yes. we just went. We didn't have to rush off and had children have children yeah. while doing our PhD and yeah. um, you know writing a bestseller. Yeah. Well, doing it all. It's interesting, actually. I find because I nerd out on on class stuff. And I I say the same thing in terms of my own story. Like there is an element of truth in, you know, there's a tyranny of low expectations, but there's also a freedom in it, right? Mm. So if you're, you know, neither of my parents finished high school either, no one had gone to uni, that meant when I did go to uni, some of my contemporaries, for example, were under a lot of pressure to do things like, I don't know, you've got to study law or you've got to study medicine or you've got to have, you know, this particularly sort of upper middle class sort of existence and career. Um, to be frank, and I'm not, you know, trying to shit on them, it's just true, my parents didn't even understand what I was doing. So in that sense, I had the freedom to do what I wanted. Yes. You know, and to go, actually, I want to do philosophy even though I'd enrolled in engineering, you know, to be at uni was enough. But I think parental ambition is incredibly destructive. Yeah. Incredibly destructive. Mm. And because I was a bit of a rebel, I didn't really have that. My mother would have loved me to go to university and make her proud, but um, but I didn't. (laughs) And, you know, 
did everything so wrong. I was the black sheep for the next 20 years. But in fact, my youngest son and my daughter have completely different uh, directions. She's mm. very, very academic, always has been, mm. and is uh, currently doing a PhD. Mm. I let him leave school at 16 mm. uh, because he, he wasn't, he was like me, he wasn't academic. Mm. And he traveled all over the world. By the time he came home at 21, mm. he'd lived in Canada, he'd worked mm. in Paris, he'd worked in London, he'd traveled everywhere. Mm. Um, because he's much more entrepreneurial, mm. and that's different that kids. Yeah, completely different kids. Yeah. So I never ever had the idea one of my children needs to do this thing mm. because that will mm. make me a good parent. I, mm. I certainly had friends criticize my um, agreeing to let him leave school at sixteen. Mm. Mm, I bet, but. I just was quite certain that he would absolutely mm. make his way in the world. Mm. So, yep, yeah, mm. and he's turned, they both turned out fantastically. Mm. And you met your child where he was, you know. And by the way, I mean, okay, you might not have done how you wanted to do at school. And I think there's lots of um, reasons for that. But, you know, let's go back to the fact that you've had a 20-year publishing deal with Penguin. Like, it's it's turned out okay. It's turned out okay. <laughs> well, the only subjects I liked at school were history and English. Yeah. So I was wagging off classes to go to the yeah. library. Yeah. And uh, so I, I've always just been a person that if I'm interested in something, I will go into it in a deep trench. Mm. If mm. I'm not interested in something. Yeah, no interest. Why would I bother? Why would I yeah. bother? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that school system is not set up for brains like that. Absolutely. And yeah. that is not a failure failure of your brain. It's a failure of the school system as we currently have it. But I love what I hear from, from the letter writer. I think it also applies not just in career but in terms of, you know, relationships and dating in the focus of this podcast. All right, did I turn around and expect to be single in my late 40s with two kids? No but I don't consider that to be a failure and I don't consider that part of my life to be done. You know, it's not all tied off in your 20s. No, and, then you know, perhaps there's someone putting that kind of pressure um, on her just yeah. to say you should have reached these, you know, hit yeah. your straps by then. Yeah. Um, and I think that's that's very destructive. It stops it is people destructive. doing the things that they want to do. And it's that comparison, you know, what is that phrase, the comparison enemy phrase, whatever that thing is. I mean, we're coming up to comparison Christmas. Comparison is the thief of joy. It's the thief of joy. Coming up to Christmas, there's a great temptation to just, you know, scroll through whatever social media you're on or even talk to people and all you can picture is happy families around, you know, a groaning table of food. No one's showing you the fight that so-and-so had That's with right. uncle so-and-so or the the thing that got burnt or the kid crying over the present they didn't like or, you know, we've got to really try to stop that comparison thing because it's simply not true. No, it's not. You're not seeing, you're seeing a tiny little sliver and you're not seeing the nuances, you're not seeing the family feuds and the no. arguments. But if you were to look at all your friends, how many friends do you have that conversation before Christmas? They go, mm. I am dreading this. Dreading it. Because my sister did yeah. this last year and yeah. I hate my brother-in-law. Yeah. Yeah. And, and my mum's going to tell me I'm fat and my cousin's going to ask me why I'm divorced and da-da-da-da. Honestly, I mean, yeah. I, I don't say this flippantly, but just 
I want to give permission to listeners who are in extreme versions of that. Like if you're actually approaching that function with dread, and I don't mean you're just kind of going, oh, I can't be bothered or it's going to be awkward. I mean with dread, don't go. Don't yes. go. Yes, you can make up an excuse. You can quickly have COVID. Look, yeah. I think I think that the one of the issues is that we are sort of programmed somehow to idealise yeah. situations that are different from our own. Yes. And, you know, sometimes I've travelled a lot on my own and mm. sometimes I'm at a restaurant, which I find particularly boring, mm. um, on my own. And then I look over at a couple and I'll see either that they're not speaking Yes. Or that they're not speaking and on their phones. Yes. Or they're just staring over each other's shoulders. Yes. Or I have seen couples when I was um, in Barcelona last year, a couple actually having a massive row in mm. the street. Mm. And I think, well, look at me. I'm just yeah. going to go and have a gelato. Yeah. I just do not yeah. need to. Yeah. Uh, because actually, Travel is quite stressful. So mm. anywhere you look, you can idealize what from mm. what you see, but mm. you're 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 not seeing the, the full story. No, and you're coming in with narratives, right? So the narrative would be there's Amanda, she's 68 at the time, she's traveling on her own, she must be lonely. Because that's the cultural script that we have. Yes. Rather than going, actually, really sit in that room and look around. Because Amanda looks all right to me, whereas the couple who can't even have a conversation over dinner, to me, that's loneliness. Yes. You right? can be much lonelier in a relationship than Much more life. so. Yeah. Because there's an expectation in that that there will be connection and an exchange. And so the absence yeah. of it is very painful, whereas Personally, I feel I'm similar to you. I'll go to the movies on my own. I'll go to a restaurant on my own. I've been overseas on my own. Because you don't have that expectation, you make, you do what you want, you know, you make and, of and it I what think, you want. Yes, and I think you make very easy connections with people. Yes. You know, you just uh, chat. I've met all sorts of people in my travels. Yeah. And just had conversations for a few minutes or an mm. hour or, Mm. Uh, and so you you become very comfortable with that. Yeah, yeah. And that is that is a great gift. So you can it's actually find company anywhere. Yeah, and then you can, the more you do that, for people listening who that sounds frightening to, the more you do it, the easier it gets is in my yes. experience. Well, you, get, you, you understand that there's a way to do it. And mm. what I always do to see if someone's up for a chat, let's say I'm on a train or. Yeah you know, in a cafe and there's a single person next door, is I have a neutral question, mm. uh, which is about um, has any has anybody come to your table yet? Yeah, great. You know? And then they'll yeah. say, no, I've been here 10 minutes. I say, yeah. oh, but this is this restaurant's supposed to have the best whatever. Yeah, yeah. have you been here before? And so, yeah, yeah that's right, yeah. yeah. So um, if they are not interested. Yeah, you pick it up. Yeah, I yeah. don't care. That's right. So you don't go forward like nose to nose going, hello, how are you? Yeah. Right. <laughs> I'm Amanda. <laughs> Can we talk? Are we friends now? Right. <laughs> I mean, I've certainly done that too. Um, but, yeah, I think you're right. Like there's, you find ways when you get more practiced at it. In a weird way, it's like dating. When you get more practiced at it, you get more comfortable and then the anxiety lessens and then your behavior and your social skills improve. 
Yes, that's right. And you, you're light with it. You know, you're not yes. planning to make a friend. I had a beautiful conversation uh, when I was in Spain with a young woman. We've both gone to the same cafe that has the best churros, breakfast yeah. churros. Yum. Which is pretty decadent. And she was beautiful young woman, blonde hair, and we sort of started chatting. She was German. And she told me that she was going home to study medicine. She's probably 20s. She discovered during COVID that um, her volunteer work led her in that direction. Mm. And so she said to me, and I'll just cry saying that she said, I'm just so, um, you know, in awe of you traveling on your own. Yeah at your time of life, yeah. can you give me a piece of advice? Oh. I know. Oh, Amanda, what advice did you give? I said, well, if you want to be a doctor, mm. and she had talked about wanting to have a family, mm. but they were two things important to her. You need a very, very, very good man. Yes. Don't settle for less because you will not no. be able to do those two things without one. Ah. Oh. Good Amanda, advice, you're think? giving me the bloody the gooseies. It wouldn't imagine if someone, if an older woman had sat me down at that young woman's age and said the same thing. Like, what a gift. What a gift. Rather than going, make sure you find someone. You'll be alone forever if you don't. Yeah, you won't be able to right. cope on your own. Like, all you know, all the shit that we were told to go, if you find the right one, great. If you don't, don't settle. Yeah. Mm. Well, it seems obvious from my from my perspective. Yeah, it's but not at that young, age, it's though. It's not so clear. No, it's not so no, clear. No, it's not so clear. All right, we're going to finish with two segments that are usually quite trivial, but you can go deep if you want. I'm happy to follow you where you go. One is no shade on my ex and we talk about like a stupid thing that an ex did. It could be something that irritated you. It could be more serious. Anything come to mind? Um, well, my first husband used to do something where he he loved, a, he was quite combative and loved a good argument about pretty much anything. So he'd go to right. a party, have a few drinks, yeah. and I would hear him saying, we think such oh. and such and such as such. Oh. With some outrageous no. idea that I did not agree with. I'd say, no. do not include me in your yeah. rants, please. Yeah. yeah. Do you know what, Amanda? I can't even bear that. I know couples who do that. Like, we like this sort of wine. Yeah. You know, we like this um, cuisine. We yeah. like alarm this. Alarm bells, cuisine. alarm bells. Oh, so many alarm. And I don't care the gender configuration. Like that can be mm, a, mm. A, a whole mix of sexualities and genders and ages. You are two individual human beings. Own your own opinion and be comfortable with your partner possibly having, a, I mean, even a different like of what sort of wine they like. I know, but it's what it's saying is we're in lockstep here. We yeah. agree on everything. I don't. Yeah. I don't believe that. No, I don't blame. And if you do agree on everything, how boring. Yeah. How and how boring. did that happen? How did that happen? Someone's suppressing something Yes, is my thought. Like who is conceding here? Because mm. there mm. must be a point at which one of you thinks something different. Are you Hopefully. even allowed to Hopefully. say it? You know? Um, and last but not least, I know you're sworn off dating and you are, in your own words, aggressively single, and I completely respect that. But I want you to imagine yourself into a dating situation 
where you are on first or second date with someone absolutely fabulous and you're thrilled and it's all going very well and then they do something, usually trivial, where you go, absolutely not. What would that be? Uh, This person has just said, at least Trump's honest. Yeah. (laughs) 100%. A yes. taxi driver said made the mistake of saying that to me the other day. Yeah. I think his ears are still bleeding. I was yeah. not going to let that go. I said, you seriously think that's honesty coming out of his mouth? Yeah. That is manipulation. Yeah. So anybody that favoured this horrendous yeah. uh, spill to right wing, any yeah. any hint of it yeah. would be, I just would get up and leave. Yeah. And I anyone who justifies... To me, whether it's Trump or someone else, anyone who justifies what is clearly shitty behaviour, usually discriminatory, usually bigoted by saying, they're just saying what everyone else thinks. I'm like, no, they're clearly saying what you think. You think. (laughs) So I'm out of (laughs) here, you know. Like it's a good tell early on for those who are listening and dating. We've said this before. There was a TikTok trend where a young woman said she asks within the first few messages, if she matches with someone on the apps, what's your most controversial opinion for this exact reason, right? So that that is out of the way before she wastes her time going Mm. on a date and doing a dinner and getting her bloody makeup on and doing the whole thing before she finds out he's a Trump supporter. Yes. (laughs) You know, there's some wisdom in it. It's simple. Yes. I like it. We haven't got time for that shit. Yeah. Ain't nobody got time for that. (laughs) beautiful hey amanda thank you so much for joining us and being so generous in your your stories and your dare i say wisdom um it's just it's lovely to chat to you and hear your perspective not just from your age but from your life experience like to come from what sounds to me like an incredibly traumatic experience at 16 and to be that walker carrying your own backpack on your own upper mountain like it's actually really inspiring oh good well thanks so much for inviting me on for the nice chat my absolute pleasure i will of course put links to all of your books and so on in your show in the show notes for this episode is there anything in particular that you would like people to look out for like have you got a current book out or anything you want my current book uh, is the tea ladies yeah and uh, so that all my books champion older women, yeah. but that one more than the rest. Yeah. And I have a new book out in April, which is the next in the Tea Ladies series, still set in 1960s, Yeah. Um, called The Cryptic Clue, and that'll come out in April. But they have been flying off the shelves. So it's Amazing. taken me 20 years to become an overnight success. Oh, how perfect. Well, if I can be so indulgent, will you come back in April? for a second episode and then we can talk about that book then sure fantastic love yeah, to yeah wonderful Thanks, thank you so much amanda see dear nelly i could use some advice dear nelly yeah some help would be nice dear nelly i'm eager to hear your point of view dear nelly there's a lot to explore dear nelly when you're 40 or more, dear Nelly, so I'm hoping we can talk it through.
Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, thanks so much for listening to Dear Nelly. Now, don't be shy. I would love to hear your questions and comments. To send me a recording or an email, go to nellythomas.com and follow the links. It's super easy and you might hear me talk about your question in a future episode. Huge thanks to producer Sam Peterson from the Producer Boy Creative Production team and to producer Faye Younger, who in addition to being an excellent human, is also a brilliant real estate buyer's advocate and can be found at youngerhill.com. Thanks to Acast and all the team. And lastly, to you. Without the listeners, I'm just a middle-aged mole talking shit to no one. Please rate, review and consider subscribing for five bucks a month for a bonus episode and to help me keep the lights on. And tell your bloody mates, would you? I'd really appreciate it. Love yous.